Hello, and welcome to our inaugural episode. The story we have for you today is the subject of the 2006 movie Hollywoodland, which I unfortunately watched as part of my research, and it's the story of the controversial death of George Reeves, who played Superman in the highly popular show Adventures of Superman from 1953 to 1958. Reeves' death was ruled a suicide, but as we'll show you, many of the details surrounding it are quite suspicious. The story reads like a noir film. There's a mistress, a jealous scorned lover, a hitman, a strong-jawed hero, and, possibly, a murder cover-up. To investigate the mysterious death of George Reeves, we have to go back to the early morning hours of June 16, 1959. You're listening to Myths and Mysteries. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. There are busts of King Tut that also show an elongated skull. Taunting the police, chiding them, daring them to capture him. And finally, he invented a name for himself, Jack the Ripper. Analysis of the grand features suggests that this animal was indeed at least 40 feet long. He could have easily eaten up a man. I expect that we'll keep looking um, from now on until we find him or find out what happened. George Reeves was born George Kiefer Brewer on January 5th, 1914. His parents divorced shortly afterward, and when his mother remarried in 1925, he was adopted by his stepfather, Frank Basolo, and took his last name. That marriage would last 15 years. Frank Basolo left while George was out of town, and upon his return, George's mother told him that his stepfather had committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. Several years would pass before George found out that Basolo was actually still alive. Warner Brothers changed George's screen name to George Reeves shortly after he was cast in his first film, Gone with the Wind, in 1939. Despite being his first film, Gone with the Wind would be George's most successful. Most of his appearances after that were small parts or box office flops. The Silver Screen's golden age was drawing to a close and studios were pinching pennies. He was released from his contracts by both Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox. Drafted into the Army in 1943, he appeared in the Army's stage and film productions until his discharge at the end of World War II. In 1953, he played a minor character in the film From Here to Eternity, which won an Academy Award for Best Picture. In the years before the film was released, however, he got an offer that changed everything. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. George Reeves hoped that nobody would watch The Adventures of Superman. He'd been groomed all along to be a movie star. He'd acted alongside Clark Gable, Vivian Leigh, James Cagney, and Ronald Reagan. 
He didn't belong leaping around in pajamas on a children's television show. Up to this point, television shows were mostly live, and TV was where washed-up actors went to string out their careers. But Reeves and his Superman co-stars, Phyllis Coates and Jack Larson, were all broke and needed the work. Reeves was chosen out of more than 200 men who auditioned for the role, due in no small part to his leading man looks and strong jaw. Upon first meeting Phyllis Coates, who played Lois Lane on the show, Reeves is said to have raised a toast and proclaimed, Here's to the bottom of the barrel, babe. The Adventures of Superman began filming in 1951, but did not air on TV until WABC began broadcasting it in February of 1953. It took only a few weeks before the show was an enormous success. The show's stars were mobbed by children when they appeared in public. In the hearts and minds of America's youth, George Reeves was Superman. And therein lay the problem. In 1953, Reeves had a chance to restore his career as a serious film actor. He was cast in From Here to Eternity. The film was a big deal. It resurrected Frank Sinatra's career and won multiple Academy Awards. It should have been George Reeves' big break, but it was not to be. During a sneak preview of the film, before final cuts were made, many of the cast and crew from The Adventures of Superman were in attendance to see Reeves's most important film appearance in a decade. Instead, what they saw was an audience that cheered, Superman, when Reeves appeared on the screen. On the comment cards that audience members filled out afterward, many wrote comments about how great it was to see Superman in From Here to Eternity. Reeves's presence in the film was too big of a distraction for studio executives who had Reeves' part completely cut from the film. George Reeves had officially become typecast. At around 1.20 a.m. on June 16, 1959, George Reeves left a room full of party guests and walked upstairs to his bedroom. A drawer was heard sliding open, and then a gunshot. One of the guests downstairs, William Bliss, went upstairs to see what had happened, and he found George Reeves on his bed, lying naked on his back, blood pooling around him and a bullet hole in the ceiling above. Reeves' bathrobe and a pistol were at his feet. The bullet casing was under Reeves' back. The police were called and arrived around 2 a.m. From here, the story is like a game of Clue. A dead body in a house full of party guests, although we do have the weapon and the room. LAPD eventually ruled that George Reeves' death was a suicide. And on the surface, that made sense. His upcoming celebrity boxing tour had been cancelled due to the lack of ticket sales. His friends all knew that he was an alcoholic who started his drinking early in the morning, although they said he held his liquor better than anyone they'd ever seen and had an incredible ability to down stupendous amounts of booze without becoming inebriated. Reeves was an aging actor who, despite his movie star grooming, had become typecast as Superman on a children's show he didn't even want to make. At the end of every season of Superman, Reeves would cut the S from the chest of his suit and then burn the costume. He wasn't getting many offers, and he wasn't as wealthy or successful as he probably should have been. But there are problems with the suicide theory. For one, George Reeves was engaged, and reportedly excited about his upcoming wedding. He was also preparing to direct a new film. In an interview he gave to the New York Post, Reeves said, Now I am enthusiastic about doing more. I am forming a production company, and we plan to make a couple of science fiction pictures. Superman had been picked up for another season, and Reeves was going to be directing more episodes himself, which excited him. Then there was the timing. 
In the middle of the night, during a party at his home, there were also some crime scene details that don't quite add up. The bullet casing was found underneath Reeves's back. He was allegedly sitting on the edge of the bed when he fired the round, so how did it get behind him? Police also found two bullet holes in the floor near his feet, which his fiancée, Leonore Lemon, explained away by saying that she'd fired Reeves's gun into the floor during an argument on a previous date. An anonymous female informant claimed to have seen Leonore fire the gun, but the two accounts didn't match. The informant claimed Leonore had fired the gun upwards from the living room, while Leonore said she'd been up in the bedroom and fired it down into the floor. Speaking of Reeves's gun, it had been oiled so recently that no fingerprints were left when it was fired. There were also no powder burns on Reeves's face, meaning that the gun was held several inches away from him when it was fired, which is extremely unusual in suicides. Reeves's autopsies were also very puzzling. Notes from the second autopsy show bruises on Reeves's head and chest that were never explained and never investigated. The bullet wound in his head was never opened to check for gunpowder residue, which should have been present if he'd shot himself. There is also no mention of any checks for gunpowder residue on Reeves's hands. The body was also quickly washed, so any gunpowder residue evidence that may have existed was lost forever. The autopsy photos later disappeared. LAPD Chief William Parker seemed to purposefully ignore any evidence that didn't point to suicide. He would be in the spotlight three years later for doing the exact same thing in the Marilyn Monroe case. It is quite possible that George Reeves killed himself. It is also quite possible that he did not, and there are some potential suspects with plenty of motive for murder. Probably the most likely is Reeves' former lover, Tony Mannix. Tony was the wife of MGM studio executive Eddie Mannix, who was infamous throughout Hollywood as a fixer, the guy who cleans up messes for the studio and its stars before the public can find out. Eddie and Tony had an open marriage of sorts. Eddie was known to have a Japanese mistress, and Tony had whatever younger man she wanted. Eddie reportedly knew of Tony's relationship with George and approved. She and George had been together for roughly a decade before he had left her for the much younger Leonore Lemon. Tony Mannix had taken care of George. She'd bought him the house. She'd gotten him money and possibly acting jobs, and she referred to him as the boy. In fact, the gun that killed George Reeves belonged to the Mannixes, too. Mannix felt in a way that she owned George Reeves and was devastated and furious when he dumped her. One theory is that Tony Mannix, enraged that George had cast her aside for a younger woman, hired a hitman to kill him. This theory is supported by a pair of car accidents that George had had prior to his death. In one of the accidents, mechanics discovered that all of the brake fluid was missing from Reeves' car. The crash left Reeves with a concussion and 27 stitches on his forehead, as well as crippling headaches, so severe that he would be forced to sleep on the cold bathroom floor with a towel wrapped around his head. It's possible that shooting Reeves in his bedroom was a last resort after attempts to kill him in a car crash had failed. Tony Mannix is known to have stalked George Reeves after their breakup, even stealing his beloved schnauzer Sam out of his car. Sam was never recovered. In the months before his death, Reeves received as many as 30 harassing phone calls per day, on which he would hear only breathing on the other end for a few seconds before the caller hung up. Tony Mannix would later admit that she'd had her gardener make the calls. She also called Reeves' co-star Phyllis Coates in hysterics at 4.30 on the morning of Reeves' death and told her, The boy is dead. George is dead. He's been murdered. 
This is curious at the very least because George's death wasn't news yet, and police were treating it as a suicide. So how did Tony Mannix already know, and why was she convinced that George Reeves' death was a murder? It's also been theorized that Eddie Mannix, seeing how Reeves had treated his wife, arranged for him to be killed. After all, much of the money that Tony had been lavishing on Reeves had come from Eddie Mannix himself. As the second most powerful man at MGM, and with known connections to notorious mobster Mickey Cohen, Eddie Mannix certainly had the capability of having George Reeves eliminated. Mannix is thought to have had his first wife, Bernice, killed. She was suing him for divorce in 1937 and accusing him of, quote, cruelty and infidelity when she suddenly died in a car crash. Despite the fact that a second set of tire tracks was visible and that there was a stripe of paint down the side of the car from where another vehicle had sideswiped it, Bernice's death was ruled an accident. There's also the fact that by the time George Reeves died, Eddie Mannix was severely weakened by heart trouble and was confined to a wheelchair. He needed Tony around to look after him and help him, not pining after some TV actor who'd broken her heart. There's also a question of whether Leonore Lemon, Reeves' fiance, was involved in his death. She was reported to have predicted Reeves' suicide as he went back upstairs, just moments before the gunshot was heard, although she would later change her story and deny this. Some people in Reeves' inner circle believed that he never intended to marry Leonore. This belief was voiced by his agent, Art Weissman. Leonore had an incendiary temper, as evidenced by the time that she smashed a $1,500 antique lamp George had just bought her, because he didn't come immediately when she called. If Leonore had discovered that George didn't actually intend to follow through with the marriage, that might have given her motive and rage enough to kill him. Art Weissman caught Leonore breaking back into the house after Reeves' death and taking $4,000 in traveler's checks from the crime scene, as well as food and liquor from the refrigerator. She also pulled the bloody sheets off the bed and threw them into the bathtub. Was she hiding evidence? Or perhaps searching for something she'd left behind? Reeves' will left everything to Tony Mannix, but Leonore always claimed that Reeves had written up a second will that named her as his beneficiary. Perhaps that's what she was there looking for. She liked to brag about having mob connections, and shortly after the death of George Reeves, friends say she began carrying a gun with her everywhere she went and exhibiting more and more paranoid behavior. Mob connections are a big part of the murder theory. Eddie Mannix had them, as did Tony by extension. Leonore Lemon had them. After Reeves' death, his mother, Helen Basolo, hired L.A.'s top defense lawyer to the stars, Jerry Geisler. After a while, Geisler dropped the case suddenly, telling Basolo and several close friends to stay out of it, saying, There are dangerous men involved here. He never told anyone exactly what it was he discovered. None of the people suspected of possibly orchestrating George's murder could have actually pulled the trigger themselves, so it would have had to have been a hired hitman. The day before his death, Reeves hired a locksmith to change all the locks on his house, likely in response to Tony Mannix's continuing harassment. The locksmith was unable to finish, however, and the locks on the back patio doors were never changed. It's theorized that Tony, or Eddie Mannix, could have provided a killer with the keys to these doors. In 1989, 30 years after the death of George Reeves, and when most people involved were now dead, Leonore Lemon told a very different account of what happened. She stated that she'd heard a thud before the gunshot, that most of the inebriated guests had already gone home, that William Bliss, 
had appeared alone at her door, distracting her and giving some unknown operative a chance to slip in through the patio door, go upstairs, and kill Reeves. There is, of course, no way to prove which version of the story is authentic. And that's the story. I want to note that the book Hollywood Kryptonite by Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger was instrumental in the research for this episode, as well as a couple articles and Wikipedia pages. A full list of resources that we used will be in the show notes. Now let's spend a couple minutes talking about some of the details that really jumped out at us. I don't think we're going to solve this mystery, but I'm curious to see if we're thinking along the same lines. First of all, I guess the first question would be, Spencer, do you think it was a suicide? I'm by no means a psychologist, um, but I, I, I do have a way with people, and it's part of it's part of what I do in my career. And uh, my thought was, you know, we hear a lot about, uh, you know, celebrities that may have gotten gotten down or or whatever that end up committing suicide. And so this guy who had such huge dreams and aspirations, who by essentially his own uh, his own thoughts was unsuccessful. Uh, his career didn't come to a good conclusion. He was dissatisfied, even with his successful program, Superman. You you alluded to him burning his costumes. And so could this have been something where he's got these people at his house. He's got people there that he might not you know, be getting along with. He's got a stalker. He's at a point in his life. He's just had a concussion, which is something that uh, that you brought up earlier. And I have seen a concussion cause a grown man to cry. It whacks with your emotions. And so he's he's got a, a, a traumatic head injury and a ton of alcohol. And so could he, in, in that state of mind, have been depressed with his lack of success, had all these people over at his house and just gone upstairs and, and ended it with everyone there as kind of his final cry for attention, uh, was Basic, my thought. Basically the, uh, the I'll show them they'll miss me when I'm gone type of thing? Exactly. Exactly. That was my thought. Yeah, that makes sense. I uh, I was trying to stay away from just jumping to a conclusion based on all of the mystery and intrigue uh, in this story. There's so many different things going on. It would be easy to say he was obviously murdered. And so I did want to consider, you know, this, this guy was uh, a Hollywood star who by his own standard uh, was unsuccessful. He, he was uh, an alcoholic. Um, he, he was surrounded himself with other people who had a variety of different problems and uh, so these are the kinds of people that, you know, suffer depression or, or might end up ending their lives. And so I didn't want to just throw that away. But ultimately, I think there's just a little too much evidence, in my opinion. There's there's too many other theories uh, to conclusively say it was a suicide. I'm, I'm leaning more toward the murder angle, I think. And if we're looking at possible reasons for a suicide, there's also the fact that he had recently been in a car accident and suffered what seemed to be a pretty severe concussion. Uh, and as we know, brain trauma can lead over time to suicidal tendencies. Now, usually that would take a long time to develop something like CTE. But I think right. when you're talking about somebody's state of mind, it's important to note that he had suffered a brain trauma recently. And, right. and, and I agree with you that there are just so many questions that aren't resolved that it's, it's really hard to say that it was a suicide. It, it's, there's just so many, so many lines that were never wrapped up properly when you see so many lines like that that as you just mentioned it makes you wonder um you know why they why they weren't followed why why these um 
why these things weren't pursued or, or brought to some sort of conclusive finality. And I know something else that you have a lot of thoughts about is the bullet casing being found underneath him. Uh, I don't have a handgun myself. I'm a shotgun kind of guy. I know you have some handguns. So tell me, what are the odds that somebody shooting himself in the temple with a handgun that the casing ends up behind and underneath him? <laughs> I sound really opinionated. Uh, but I do I do own a few. I've shot them many times. I've gone uh, to a gun range before and after purchase and just a few times because I think it's fun. And... Uh, from everything that I have experienced, the, this particular weapon that he shot himself with or was killed with was, I believe, uh, a 9mm Luger. Uh, it's a gun that has a magazine. It is not a revolver. It's not something, <clears throat> it's not something that would, would be easily done, in my opinion. I'm not a firearms expert, but I've shot, you know, many rounds, and in my experience, I've been hit in the face with casings. Uh, they've been launched behind me. I've been standing behind other people who were firing a handgun and tried to catch their casings, which is a terrible idea because they will burn your hand. But, <laughs> you know, every time I've seen them go straight up in the air, you know, maybe off to the right a little bit, which I guess could be a possibility off to the side. But for somebody who was shot through the right temple and out the left temple, according to the reports and the notes, um, and was shot from a ways away, which we know because there were no powder burns, up on on the flesh on the side of his head or his hair that was far away and so for it to be behind him it would have had to have gone ejected out of the out of the gun itself forward into the left to be behind him and it would have had to have happened before he fell backwards there's also the possible possibility he would have fallen backwards and to the left with the concussion of of the shot to to the side of his head so it just doesn't seem to line up for me like i said not uh, not a CSI expert or a handgun expert, but it just doesn't seem to line up. Well, that may be the smoking gun in this case. <laughs> That's terrible. I'll show myself out. I'm very sorry, everybody. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that we pointed out in this episode that the police chief, William H. Parker, did the exact same sort of job three years later with the Marilyn Monroe case where, you know, there was so much political... Uh, p- potential for scandal and intrigue around her death uh, thanks to her involvement with the Kennedys and you know it, the same thing applied where he he kind of said oh this is a suicide and anything that really would have pointed otherwise was completely ignored and you know I, I don't remember from my research if he was the police chief um, all those years before when Bernice Mannix died in the car accident but there's there's a mm-hmm. pattern here of things being ignored that should not have been. Right. And if there's one thing, Zach, that uh, a copious amount of TV has taught me in my life, uh, (laughs) TV drama and crime shows, it's that, uh, you know, you always have to consider these things. Why would, why would the person kill themselves? I'm reminded of, of a TV show that you and I used to watch the episode of, of psych where, you know, they quickly rule a suicide and he says, aha, but, the guy has leftovers in his refrigerator, and why would he? Why would there be leftovers in the refrigerator if he's going to kill himself? And clearly, uh, watching too much television because I spend my time wisely, it does not make <laughs> me any kind of detective. But with much more, um, you know, much larger questions to ask here, it seems like that definitely shouldn't have just been thrown out so quickly. Yeah, and there are just so many things that. You know, the the guests that were at the house when the police arrived, 
were never brought in for questioning. You know, they were spoken to in the home, in the scene, you know, before the body was removed and stuff. They were never brought back in for re-questioning. You know, there's no explanation for the bruises uh, on his body. There's no um, opening of the wound to check for gunpowder residue. There's the body being washed quickly before the hands are tested for gunpowder residue. residue. And it almost seems like not only did they not explore options other than suicide but that they wanted to make sure that there was no chance of exploring those so that was something that really really stood out you know i put a big star by that in my notes that that was really really questionable right i mean how does that happen i mean i know it's 1959 uh i certainly am not a law enforcement officer and was not even around in 1959 but how does that not happen how do you not ask anybody else any questions or, or go back to cover that up. It's just, it's uh, it's uh, an enigma. So I, I guess to answer the question that I asked you, I obviously neither one of us can say 100% with any kind of certainty it was a suicide or it was a murder, but I'm certainly leaning towards a murder. And I certainly, um, first off, I would recommend reading the book Hollywood Kryptonite that I recommended. Again, all of our resources will be in the show notes on our website. Uh, and, uh, in the podcast uh, blurb, but there's a lot at the end where 30 years later, once all the key players have died, Leonore Lemon gives an interview where she just gives a completely different description of the crime. And there's so much detail that's filled in that Tony and Eddie Mannix look extremely, extremely guilty. So if I had to choose, Hmm. you know, uh, no pun intended, but gun to my head, if I had to choose, (laughs) that would be the avenue that I would go. Right. And I mean, the question that that raises in my mind is why would people lie if it was a suicide? I mean, I know essentially people lie to conceal guilt or people lie in in scenarios like this to conceal what, what may make them look dirty. If it was a a, a clear suicide, like it was ruled, um, I don't feel like it would be necessary. And so you've got, you know, people changing stories. Like, Like I said, essentially people lie to conceal things about themselves or that might implicate themselves as 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 guilty or, or let somebody take a second look at them as guilty and so you've got these people years later including these these interesting details that they've clearly remembered all of this time would that really be necessary and it certainly raises you know raises some questions in, in my eyebrows it's unlikely that we'll ever know with any certainty whether george reeves died by his own hand or by some unknown assassins uh what is certain is that the story is certainly a tragedy uh you know, haunted by what could have been and what never was uh, for George Reeves. And although George Reeves played the Invincible Superman on television, in reality, he was anything but. Uh, the calm strength and perfection of Superman was something that Reeves was never able to attain in his personal life. Uh, it must have been so disheartening to be the Man of Steel on screen while feeling so powerless off it. Uh, Reeves' final appearance, and I'll leave you with this, his final appearance on screen was in the finale of season six of The Adventures of Superman, in which Jimmy Olsen dreams that he and Lois Lane have the same superpowers as Superman. Here's a clip from that episode. Let's face it, Jimmy. Like I said, none of us will ever be able to do the things Superman does. I guess not. But golly, Mr. Kent, you'll never know how wonderful it is to be like Superman. No, Jimmy, I I guess I never will. Those were the last words George Reeves would ever speak on camera. One last thing before we sign off for this episode. It's fun to speculate about whether George Reeves was murdered, to recount the details and try to solve the mystery. That's why we all tell these stories, isn't it? 
It's fun. But regardless of who fired the shot, one thing doesn't change. A life was lost, a promising life that still had so much more to offer. We want you to enjoy listening to these stories. We certainly enjoy telling them, but I hope that you'll take a moment to remember that the loss of a life, any life, is an immeasurable tragedy, and we are doing the dead a disservice if the only thing we get from their story is entertainment. This is not the last story we'll bring you that involves a murder, so I just wanted to take a moment to ask you, please remember and respect those whose lives were lost. Thank you. This has been Episode 1 of Myths and Mysteries. Find us on Facebook or at Myths Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Show notes, links, and downloads of every episode can be found at our website, mythsandmysteriespod.com. Episodes can be downloaded from iTunes and Google Play. I'm Spencer. And I'm Zach. And we thank you for listening to this episode of Myths and Mysteries. See you next time.